All right, so it's the it's 22nd, 22nd anniversary of 9-11. Do you think about 9-11 much? In September, yes. Right. And I have to say, I think about it in terms of the origin story, right? The fact that I was pregnant with Robert during 9-11 makes me think about 9-11 more because I think about the fact that I was pregnant with this person who's now an adult, right? Like That's what I was thinking. That event is tied to a very particular, amazing watershed time in your life. And so those are inextricable. And I think if it had happened... Before I got pregnant or after I had him, I wouldn't necessarily be thinking about it as much. When we got together, we knew we wanted to have kids. But how do you think, if we hadn't had Robert, if we hadn't conceived Robert before 9-11 happened, do you think your viewpoint toward having kids would have changed? Yeah, I think it would have. I mean, the number of times I have felt guilty about having kids in the last 10 years has been astronomical because they are not living in the world that I would want to bring kids into. Like, I feel like in a lot of ways it was irresponsible and I just didn't realize it because, you know, back then when we had them. Having kids is a selfish act, right? Yeah, well, and I knew it was for me because I wanted to be a mother. I Like, I didn't feel like, oh, I need to populate the earth or like these humans I create are going to have these majestic experiences. I really just wanted to be a mother and that's very selfish. Why do you feel guilty about something you had no conception of, no perception of, and no way of predicting? I mean, you make decisions with what you have, where you are at the time. I could have looked at how much the minimum wage was increasing and what that was saying about the economy. I could have looked at other economic (laughs) indicators. I could have looked at all kinds of shit. I mean, I could have been reading a lot more and thinking, is this going to get better or worse? And I think it was pretty easy to look around and say this was going to get worse. Humans that are the ages of our children are astronomically depressed compared to what we were because they realize that their prospects are so slim. And if you look at the weather across the globe in the last three months, we are fucked. And our kids are going into that. They've never had a good old days ever. And that just makes me feel guilty that I did this to two human beings that I love more than anything else. Wait, so you're saying you wish you'd read The Economist more before you had children? <laughs> well, I read The Economist plenty before I had children. but um, You I don't gave think me the all Economist... kinds of shit for reading The Economist when well, we were the married. The Economist is a neoconservative magazine. It's, it wasn't making the kind of predictions that would have been useful. Well, trends for me don't at the have time. political partisanship. Yeah, but the analysis of trends does. You really, you think there's a neoconservative bent to The Economist? Oh, yeah. I just really enjoyed the discussions about American politics from a non American source. But it's also pretty common for people uh, looking for news that, that shares its political values. And if it doesn't, then it's neoconservative. Like everyone is saying that. CNN That's is not the case at all. No. <laughs> oh, oh, well, hey, talk about CNN. Are, is this the introduction right now for somebody that <laughs> spent a lot of their career working for CNN? Yeah, that's my way of segueing to Alex Walker. Yeah. <laughs> okay, 17 years. Really, I feel yeah. skilled. <laughs> oh, boy. Well, yeah. Sometimes okay, so that I mean, broken clock just tells you the right time. Uh, so, I mean, the introduction to this episode with Alex, and Alex isn't any kind of like, 
9-11 expert, right? Which is why I wanted to talk to him. And Alex Walker is a friend of mine from college, and he was a producer at CNN for 17 years. And he happened to have written, while he was a producer, a piece for CNN a couple months after 9-11 that really resonated with a lot of people because it was just about sort of the experience. And it wasn't saying we're doomed or everything's going to be amazing or anything like that. It wasn't passing judgment. It was just kind of talking about what the experience of the people on the street in New York was like and how it felt a couple weeks after, I think he said seven weeks after 9-11. And I thought, well, this would be interesting. Let's just bring Alex on and talk about is life now what he would have predicted it would have been back then when he wrote that initial piece. And so that's what yeah, spoiler we Spoiler alert, about. the answer is hell no. <laughs> <laughs> right. He happened to have been in a place to observe 9-11 as a journalist at the time. And so I think he's got he an didn't live in New York as well. Yeah. No, he, he had didn't. an outsider's had- perspective- He could be a bit more sanguine about it because he wasn't feeling it day to day, smelling that smoke and and everything. But he had lived in New York, so he understood what it was like to live in New York. He just wasn't living in New York at the time because he was at CNN headquarters in Atlanta. So So that's why I wanted to bring him on. And I think it's an interesting episode because it is kind of like sort of the everyman look at what's happened in the last 22 years and the state of journalism and raising kids. Yeah, that was interesting. Can you imagine... If you had moved to Michigan with one of our kids and the other had stayed with me in New York? I think it would have been a really fascinating experience. I mean, I don't know what else to say about it. You know, I would have missed the kid a lot, but I don't know. Like, you know, there are pluses and negatives to everything. And uh, Outstanding insights from Magda Pechenyuk. <laughs> <laughs> Touche. Right. right. My brother-in-law showed up at my house the other day and he was wearing a shirt that said everything in the world is either ice cream or not ice cream. Okay, there you go. That's not false. (laughs) I was divorced right the pandemic was was starting, and uh, during, the, during the pandemic, Ooh. yeah, she wanted to uh, to move to Florida. So she and my uh, daughter uh, decided they wanted to move to Florida, and my son and I decided we wanted to stay in Colorado. So it's been uh, it's been an interesting couple of years. How old's your son? He's eighteen, and he's just started college up in Steamboat Springs. So he's about three weeks into college and just having a blast. He's going to be happy here come snowboard season. <laughs> because he's not going to have to focus on the academics as much. He's a good kid. I'm kidding, but he, uh, you know, Colorado Mountain College has a lot of a lot of opportunities. I mean, you, you know, camping. There's a warehouse full of gear you can just check out and take a duck boat out of there or get some rappelling gear. Um, so he's a kid in the candy store. This is the kind of college experience and college admission process we're all going through now. In terms of let's yep. not gravitate toward a name. Let's just find a place that has the things our kids want and things our kids can learn from, profit from, and not necessarily aim for the t-shirt or the bumper sticker and more for the experience. Exactly. Coming out of this pandemic, everybody had a disruptive high school experience if they're coming out of high school now. And, you know, finding a college where he can really thrive and, and really have that 
dormitory experience where he's around a lot of kids and he's kind of independent and doing his own thing. I think that's the most important part right now. I've been thinking a lot about how the sort of names and the rankings are a lot less important than sort of the experience while you're there, but also the alum experience. And that there are a lot of these schools that are like people would say are like second or third or fourth or whatever tier, but they're specialized in some way. And so you end up with this better alum experience than you do even at the big schools. He's going to do the work. Let's get him in an environment where he's super happy. He says he's going to come home uh, here shortly for for a weekend, but I, I don't have my money on that. Well, if your washer dryer works, then it'll it's then you might have dryer. a. That's right. That's right. <laughs> as far as co-parenting goes, I don't know if you knew about the blog we started when after we split up way back in the day, but that was a big part of our development as co-parents and helped me understand more about what it's like to be a co-parent. It helped fuel our move to Ann Arbor. I mean, the other story you may not know is that you know we were in New York when 9/11 happened. After we split, we found a couple of apartments that were in proximity, and the, the most affordable place to do that at the time was Inwood. And then we moved to Ann Arbor together. How do you think your son's college experience in terms of choosing a college was informed by this co-parenting situation that was still pretty fresh in his mind? Well, it's interesting because we had initially thought he would apply for school in Florida and we would kind of gravitate toward Florida. I've, I've got an office down close to NASA. And so I was kind of going back and forth anyway. Before he moved away, I thought, you know, I, I see my daughter more than I see this guy because he's always <laughs> in his car. He was working six nights a week, uh, going to school, uh, just just a busy kid. But I've tried to get down to Florida at least once a month. And of course, my daughter comes out here too for, for breaks, you know, fall break or summer break. But, you know, I thought that eventually we would end up moving there. And he was applying for a couple of schools in Florida, but he leveled with me, I'd say maybe going into 2023 and just said, look, I'm, I'm happiest here. And he was just trying to make everybody else happy. I think he wanted to make yeah. me happy, make his mom happy. And it came down to it. I, I said, look, you got to do you, right? I mean, you're got a good he- head on your shoulders, working multiple jobs, taking care of his own car, doing adult things, <laughs> just really proud of the guy. And I said, this is your life, right? Part of the reason I stayed in Colorado is because this is what's best for you, right? You were happy here. You were thriving here. During the pandemic, you know, it was a challenge, I think, for both my daughter and my son. My daughter's two years behind my son, so she's a junior in high school. They had vastly different experiences during the pandemic, right? My daughter, she had a group of friends here in Colorado. Their parents were very much against any sort of gathering or getting together or sleepovers or any sort of interaction it was a really challenging time for my daughter, who I think felt like she was kind of sequestered in her room and alone, whereas my son was just getting into high school at the time, and he was just out and about with his friends all the time, and he had just a different experience. So I think he had more of a more of a bonding experience, and, and when he was first starting to experience that independence, as we all do when we get closer to the driving age, right? And he forged those strong ties with friends and just, I, I think he just wanted to stay here. My daughter, on the other hand, out of the pandemic, she was like, get me out of here. You know, <laughs> let me try something yeah. new. And when my ex had an opportunity to move to Florida, you know, we, we had a long conversation about it. And, you know, I think that my daughter's been a lot happier in Florida because she's found a new uh, set of friends and she's older and into the upper class years of high school. I miss her like crazy, but I'm, I'm really happy that she's 
thriving there. And, you know, it took a long time for my ex-wife and myself to really get to a good place co-parenting. It sounds like you guys had a, had a pretty strong, you know, start to that. I don't know uh, that it was a strong start, but I mean, it was 15 years ago. And I mean, I, we're very young. It's really, it, it helps to have <laughs> a real fresh clay to work with. Well, yeah. I mean, that's the other thing. Like when we got divorced, our kids were what they were five and three when the divorce was final, I think, you know, it, that's a completely different game, two, right? Five it's, and two. it's really, oh yeah. Five and two. Yeah. And the, you know, like at that point, so much of it is just like moving them around from place to place and making sure they have yeah. snacks. So <laughs> yeah. They didn't assert their will. They didn't have friends that they needed to see. They didn't have, have any of that experience. And I remember during the pandemic, and I'm sure you felt the same way too, just seeing people who had little kids who were suddenly stuck inside all the time, like what a oh. nightmare that was. People who had kids starting kindergarten that year and their um, kindergarten yeah, yeah. was on I Zoom mean, was, and stuff like that. Yeah, I, I was remarried, right? So my, my wife is a first grade teacher and I've watched her kind of go through you know, this post-pandemic world where kids, if you think about it, if they weren't in school or they weren't going to the grocery store to shop, then the the curriculum, like the learning materials that say, like, what is this person doing? And you see a person obviously in a grocery store right. shopping. They had no idea. Right. So you think you kind of take that for granted, like, oh, of course they're shopping. And of course, this you know, first grader is yeah. going to nail the question. But if you hadn't been on the playground, if you hadn't been shopping, if you hadn't been in restaurants, those little picture exercises that you do when you're in kindergarten, first grade, they don't make any sense to you. Yes. Because you're like, yes. I don't know what this is. Yeah. So, yeah. Right. And that's another consideration about the co-parenting discussion you had with your ex, because you also are married to someone with a life in Colorado. Yep. So it's funny you mentioned the whole idea of you do you, because at least in my limited experience, it seems like our generation spent a lot more time pleasing our parents. I know for the longest time I was all set to go to my dad's alma mater. And at the last second I said, no, I had a better experience. I went to another school and loved it and had to break it to my dad that I wasn't going, you know, it was a legacy thing. And I've been very conscious about that, of the idea of whatever our kids want to do, it's their lives to lead, which is, a, I think, part of a greater story about recognizing that all parents, divorced or otherwise, need to let the kids be who they are, not necessarily think they can control them and shape them into being what they want them to be. Uh, but do you think it's a generational thing that kids, our kids' age are more emboldened to do their own thing as opposed to kind of do what pleases their parents? You know, I think it's all situational. And I kind of think about the different generations, like Gen Xers like we are, and then the ones that had the helicopter parents with, you know, everybody gets a gold star. I think now the current generation, at least my kids who are finishing high school and getting into college, I think just reinforcing the message that they really had the power to kind of choose their own destiny. I think the pandemic almost uh, freed that up a little bit more that 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 kind of thinking where happiness seems so hard to obtain at that time right yeah you know I don't know if it's generational to your question Doug I didn't really you know hold my parents up to be you know hey I, I have to do what they they did. they wanted me to fly to I mean they had me I shipped off to a college 2,000 miles away from home and I don't uh -huh. I don't know but that's a story <laughs> <laughs> yeah you know that was hard for them but uh I never really felt like I had to to, to conform to, to, you know, what, what they thought I should be. Just sweeping generalizations like that are pretty risky. I was just thinking in general, <laughs> it's usually well, situational more than generational. Yeah. I mean, as somebody who's known Alex for 30 plus years, I feel like you kind of have already always had your own agenda. Like you always knew what you wanted to do. 
And I don't know how much that intersected with your parents or not. But I mean, I remember thinking like you were very specific and intentional about doing what you wanted to do, even when you were 19 years old. And I also think if you had the experience of just doing what you wanted to do, then it's easy for you to see that if your kid is doing what he wants to do, it's going to work out. Like, I think some of it for our parents' generation was that they didn't necessarily have any model of people following their own path and getting off the general path and having success. Okay, so I would like to get to the reason that we invited you onto the podcast in the first place, which is that this is our uh, special 9-11 commemorative episode, right? It's a very and special episode of When the Flames Go Up. very special episode. We were talking about, well, what do we want to say about this? Because I think for us, 9-11 was very formative in kind of how we parented our kids, how we made decisions about our lives. And I thought about when you were a producer at CNN, and you wrote this piece that really just, I think, captured the experience of being the average New Yorker in the wake of 9-11. And like, it was kind of like, um, how do we make meaning from this? And so I wanted to talk to you and find out sort of like where you were when you wrote that. And how do you think our predictions came true or didn't come true? in the intervening 22 years since you wrote that piece. We're all obviously 22 years. I know, right? Well, we're all different people. We've had these other lives. We've all like gotten married, had kids, gotten divorced. Right. Like, isn't it true? Like if you're all your cells regenerate every seven years, then that (laughs) 9-11 was three selves ago. (laughs) Right. Exactly. So I guess talk about the piece that you wrote and the reaction that it got and sort of all of that. Put yourself back in that place. Yeah, well, first of all, I, I want to thank you guys for, for doing this commemorative show because I think that not a lot of people give a lot of thought to this event that happened so many years ago now. And it's really it's really too bad because uh, you're right. I mean, we're completely different people than we were 22 years ago. And I think that those big transformative events that happen like that, the way the news cycle works now, it's you're just on to the next thing, you know, you're on to the next TikTok, you know, five second video that you're not really absorbing. And, you know, I look back at 9-11 as this, it's before 9-11 and after 9-11, right? I mean, life changed so, so much, how we get around, how we travel, how we, you know, security measures, it, it's transformed our lives. But at the time I was on assignment, I, I had moved to Atlanta. So, you know, I wasn't in New York on 9-11. I was one of the uh, many, many producers who were sent to the New York Bureau that fall to cover the aftermath. I just remember the palpable sense of community and brotherhood in New York City, which I'd never seen. I'd lived in New York for three years. I just never saw that community come together. I had an opportunity to go down to the site, to Ground Zero. It was you know, just, just heart-wrenching. It just sticks with me to today. It was still acrid down there, wasn't it? It was still kind of smoldering, and they were clearing the debris away. and. I think the sensory aspect of it was, apart from the lack of shadow in the sky, how unsettlingly bright it was down there because there was no big looming building anymore. The smell sticks with me. Yeah. You know, the day I visited, it was, like I said, about seven weeks after, and it still had that blue sky, that deep, deep blue sky that so many people talk about from Tuesday, September 11th. 
remember turning to to face the the only unobstructed view of of where the towers were and the top of the World Trade Center had this kind of woven uh, almost like cathedral like um design at the very top mm-hmm. and you turn that corner and you saw that which you were used to seeing at the very top of the building and yet it's upside down and mangled yeah it was it was, a, it was tough to see clearly there were lots of forces weighing in on you. You weren't a family man yet, and I was about to be. Magda was about three and a half months pregnant with our older child. That really hit me in a place where you think, what type of world am I bringing a child into? Yeah. How did, I mean, how did you kind of process that? You know, there's that atavistic sense of I have to protect. And I think that was an issue of, of confronting how vulnerable we all are. I mean, my first thought was to call Magda brief backstory you may recall like how long before 9-11 did that guy tried to base jump off the uh statue of liberty oh it was like three weeks or something there some yeah there was a guy who had tried something stupid he wanted to uh jump out of a plane and land on the statue of liberty and then base jump off it so when the first plane hit and we had this astonishing view of it i mean this trade center was the focal point of my southbound view from my office and we heard this plane roar past us and it landed smack dab in the middle of the north tower and my first thought it was a mistake you saw the the first one right yeah we heard the first one roar past my back and uh and we were all sitting there watching the north tower burn and then we looked south and saw the second plane bearing down on the second tower so we were all watching just pressed against the glass and you knew immediately it was you were under attack i mean i think anybody who saw that I called Magda. She was home watching New York One saying, what the hell's going on here? And then mm-hmm. I'd hung up with her and we saw the second one. And that's when we evacuated. And that's, we didn't really process that the first plane uh, was a predatory act. And so after the second one hit, then we just fled down the stairs and I walked home, which was about, yeah, I don't know, a couple of miles. Doug to called me and he was like, there's something hit one of the World Trade Centers. And I said, oh, it was probably some other asshole doing some prank. Because we really thought, I thought, it was just like this guy who had tried to parachute onto the Statue of Liberty or whatever it was, that it was just a prank gone wrong. Because, I don't know, Occam's razor, like, to me, it was much more reasonable that somebody would be trying to pull a prank that would go wrong than that somebody would actually be attacking the World Trade Center. That just didn't make any sense in my head. But and I had a weird it, perspective, too, because I didn't realize how big the plane was. You know, right. it was the... The tower far away, I thought it was just a private plane without realizing it was a jumbo jet full of fuel. Well, and Doug called and I turned out, I was it was um, primary day of the election. And, you know, it was a Tuesday and I had just stopped having morning sickness and I was going to go out and flyer for my mayoral candidate, who was Mark Green at the time. So um, anybody who knows New York politics from back then knows that I was a Mark Green. Wow, you might as well be saying Martin Van Buren at this point. Jeez. (laughs) Seriously. I remember Doug called me and I turned on the TV and they didn't have the right angle on it. So you could see the smoke coming out, but you couldn't see the hole at all. You couldn't tell how big the hole was at all. And that was part of what made me think it was an accident. And I was like, I don't know. And so we hung up and then I called my mother. And I said to her, my mom was in Ohio at the time. And I said, hey, I don't know if this is even going to hit the national news, but I just wanted to call and let you know there's something weird going on at the Trade Center. 
Doug and I aren't near it. So don't worry about it. If he, if it does make the news, don't worry about it. We're not anywhere near it. And then I hung up and then I went out and went to the Union Square subway station and I'm flying and then people are coming out crying and Hmm. just hysterical. And I was like, what happened? And they said there was a terrorist attack in the World Trade Center. And then people started coming out covered in dust and smoke and ash and stuff Hmm. like that. And my first thought was, oh, do you think they're still going to have the primary? Should I go vote now? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, not yeah you hadn't heard the Pentagon story yet yeah. either, right? Because they no, were murmuring, had, they were walking up Sixth it. Avenue, and yeah. there were thoughts. We were getting stories from the few cell phones that still worked. There was communication saying this also happened at the Pentagon. Right. Well, and I didn't have a cell phone anyway at that point. Like, it's so interesting to think about how different it was then, because now if it happened, I would have gotten an alert while I was standing there. It was so hard to describe, I think, to people now. You know, anybody under the age of 30 maybe could not comprehend a world in which you just didn't know what was going on. Yeah, because I walked home from Greenwich Street. We, I walked up to Union Square. But after I'd called her from the office, there was no way to get a hold of her and tell her I was okay. I was out of the building. I was on my way home because there was a line for every payphone. So I walked up 7th Avenue and I got to St. Vincent's Hospital where Robert was eventually born. And looked back and saw two towers. And then I walked along 12th Street between 7th and 6th. And I found a little barbershop that had a payphone. I ducked in there, throwing a quarter, and called Magda and told her I was on my way home and I was fine. And every time I've been back to New York, I've always made a point to stop by that barbershop. It's just kind of a, it's a touchstone place for me. Because while I was making that walk, and making the call to Magda, I got to 6th Avenue and saw that there was only one tower up. So one tower had fallen while I was on the phone with her. And I sat there on 6th Avenue and watched the second tower fall. And that's when the the enormity of the situation really hit because these buildings are gone now. And, and it really hit me because the last time I was there, the barbershop had closed. And it was something mm-hmm. else now. But for the yeah. longest time, for 20 years that's after, probably- that little barbershop was sitting right there and I would look at that payphone and think about that experience and now that's not possible. I mean, I remember that moment thinking, "Oh wow, that's another page that's been turned." Yeah, I was uh I was working in Atlanta. My wife at the time was down in Florida. Her her father was having surgery the morning of 9/11. So she was in the waiting room. He was actually in the the room having surgery and they didn't tell the doctors and they didn't they didn't tell anybody you know, what was going on just to, you know, make sure that right. that surgery went okay. But she was freaking out and uh, called me from, from the waiting room and said, Hey, turn on the, turn on the TV. And that's when I saw the the smoke coming out of one of the towers. And as I was on the phone with her, I think I had a toothbrush in my, in my hand, I saw the other plane hit. And so I got dressed as fast as I could and drove down to CNN center, which at the time was the world headquarters for the network. I just remember going straight to the CNN newsroom and it was complete chaos. You know, I'd never seen that newsroom like that. And, you know, I was working in the CNN science and technology unit, so I wasn't activated that day. It was breaking news is just a different animal. And so we were kind of support folks. And then of course, in the aftermath, we started, you know, digging into what caused the towers to fall, what kind of temperatures. Oh yeah. So that was like, Mm-hmm. solid, solid content that was all you guys, because it was all science. 
Yeah, so we we got activated sort of in the aftermath to kind of piece together sort of the what happened and why. And that day, my boss at the time, who was executive producer of the science and technology unit, he called us all sort of in his office and he was he was crying and he just said, look, you know, we don't have anything to do today. And I just remember going home and there was a, there was a church that was open. And I, I don't think I ever even really noticed the church um, before, but I kind of ducked in there. And I remember the pastor of the church came up and said, I, I don't really have anything to offer. But, a, you know, he offered a prayer, but then he just left the microphone open. And this church just started filling up over the next hour. I think I was there two hours or so. and. Slowly but surely, the, the church just filled up and, and people were coming to the microphone just to express their thoughts. Um, but people were just devastated. I remember going to my apartment after that church gathering and I just, just fell to my knees and just cried and cried. And you think about these events that define generations, right? You know, we were just sharing stories of what we were doing on 9-11. If you can't answer that question, you know, if you're too young to answer that question, I don't think you'll ever really understand. We think about other tragic moments that have that have happened in our international history, and you wonder how how long does it take before people kind of forget a little bit? Like Pearl Harbor, we talk about that one. There have been other disasters like the Titanic, but you know, you you think how many generations pass, Titanic becomes like a musical or right. a movie. Right. You know, like, like, how does that happen? You know, I could never imagine anybody kind of making light or making some sort of entertainment out of what happened on 9-11. Right. Well, right, another like middling movie with Ben Affleck. <laughs> right. They have made entertainment from it, but it's been about the human experience part of it, right? Like there's that musical come from away about that town in Canada where the planes all got diverted yeah. to it and, oh, yeah. you know, how yeah. they were all sort of managing that together. But that's not about the tragedy at all. I think you're right, like, Nobody's ever going to make a movie with a Celine Dion song about 9-11. Well, it'll be written by ChatGBT if it is. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, well, yeah, we could write it now during this episode. Just dial up ChatGPT. So are you the person now that you thought in the aftermath of 9-11 you were going to be 22 years later? Because I am absolutely not. I just thought everything was over. I thought everything was going to be sad. I thought everything was going to be risky and terrifying forever. And it is sad and risky and terrifying, but not because of yeah, the I was going to say, where were you wrong? <laughs> right? Like, I mean, I guess I'm glad that at the time I wasn't as worried about climate change and about the economy and about just sort of this pervasive sadness that Gen Z and Gen Alpha are walking out into, but I'm not the same person that I thought I was going to be. I'm wondering if mm -hmm. you think you are. I don't know. That's a tough one. I spent 17 years as a journalist. So for me, I was just on to the next story, on to the next story. On to, I remember staying on 9-11 coverage for a very long time, you know, a solid, solid year. But I, I don't know how to think about that one. I, I well, it's a weird question because it's one of those things where do we even have the luxury to reflect on something like that? We just have to focus so much on pressing forward and making the best of what we have and doing the best with what we can with what we have wherever we are. Thank you, Teddy Roosevelt. But at the same time, we're taking this opportunity to think about where life was in 2001 
how media has changed, how divisive 9-11 has become as a wedge issue for people who think it never happened, which drives me absolutely fucking bats. It drives me crazy. It. it really does. Or all the conspiracy theories around it. Look, we know we know what happened. I, but you're a journalist too, right? I mean, we were enthusiastic about how the internet was blossoming, but we had I had no idea of how pernicious a force it could become in terms of feeding propaganda to people. America flourished because it was protected by two big oceans, and the internet put that away. Now, if you're a troll in Vladivostok, you can attack us all you want. So I would probably add to Magda's question and just say, as a journalist, over the past several years, in terms of how our connectedness has increased and decreased, could we have even predicted where we are uh, if we hadn't read a bunch of dystopian sci-fi novels? Right. Yeah, I think that's a, an interesting way to approach the question. We, we are products of, of all of the technology that we experienced over the last 20 years, right? I mean, Magda, you mentioned like not having a cell phone or not having internet. I, I didn't either. I, I think that's the biggest challenge with technology because I was, I was at CNN covering science and technology during a very interesting time of, of Google coming online, of Facebook coming online. Twitter, rideshare, all of the disruptive technologies born of the information age, you know. And I was really excited about social media when it came online. I, in fact, I yeah. left my job at CNN to go work for Facebook and Instagram, and I moved my family to Silicon Valley, and I worked for, you know, oh, Mark wow. Zuckerberg, and yeah, and I, I worked didn't know for that. Yeah, yeah, it was three years, and it was, you know, an interesting experience. And I thought. You know, at the time, you know, the mission was to keep the world open and connected. And then when my kids got older and they started getting into social media, I started to see the adverse effects of bullying and just these short attention spans because of the content. I think the craziest thing about being middle-aged now is it's not that long ago where we were so disconnected with having to go to a payphone, not having anything recorded on YouTube for, for posterity, for future employers to see. I'm so pleased that I don't have any video from my college yeah. days. None of, not, like, no. none of it exists, <laughs> ever, right? So that's great. I love that with social media, we're you know connected to, to folks that we may have otherwise lost connection with, but at the same time, it's, it's overload, and there it's a lot of your information just kind of out there. That's a great story that you were a journalist who went to work for Facebook. Yeah. Given what Facebook and Google have done to journalism in the intervening time. Yeah, it was interesting. I, I was producing a story about Facebook and had some Facebook executives come to CNN Center, made the rounds and did some interviews. It was a new product they were releasing at the time. And at the end of the day, I basically had interest from one of the communications leads in, in recruiting me. And a month and a half later, I was moving to Silicon Valley. What year was, was uh, this? This was 2013. So Facebook had just acquired Instagram. And I was part of a team that was helping to onboard influencers and celebrities to the platform because at the oh. time facebook had been this walled garden right with the privacy settings and they 2012 they opened that up to say no, no no we can have public content on facebook now so that means these public voices would now have a place and the reason they did that is because twitter was eating facebook's lunch right, right. because twitter was where all of the celebrities and influencers were, were broadcasting um, and it's probably worth noting that right around that time was also when cambridge analytica started to operate and yeah. build yep. what became a huge machine for the 2016 election. Yeah, and I left Facebook right as the primaries were starting, so I was never embroiled in, in any of that, thankfully, because I, I got to do the fun stuff, which was like, how do we get Tom Brady on the platform, right? That was <laughs> that was a lot of fun. Um, so what lured then, you away from Facebook? 
Uh, you know, just the life in Denver, the Bay Area was just cost of living was so much. And my yeah. kids were about to enter middle school. And I thought, let's just settle down somewhere that's not a gazillion dollars. We were renting a house. It was like a three bedroom, two bath ranch, you know, and the market value was like 1.5 million for this house that had like <laughs> wood, wood paneling and original like mauve or green, you know, fixtures. Wow. <laughs> like and you Facebook made a good thing. living there and you still couldn't yeah. afford to live there. It all goes to rent. And then and that's you know, what's happening all over. People can't afford to live where they're working. Yeah. But even so, executives like you are having that problem. Yeah. And now Denver's the same. I mean, Denver's now sky high. So. As a point of reference, I was working at Standard & Poor's before I was at Citigroup. I was actually working in the residential mortgage-backed securities area. I was an editor putting reports together. And, and my job was just to dot the I's and cross the T's and make it look pretty. But then toward the end of my tenure there, there were these reports that never made it out of committee, that the advisors, like, it was in my report queue, but it was always taken away. And you could tell, I mean, I'm looking, looking back on it now, I had no idea at the time, but now you could tell as the subprime mortgages were creeping in, this whole rubber stamp AAA rating thing was becoming problematic. And there was an issue, Ooh. like, this, this wasn't going to end well, right? So, so you kind of saw it coming then, right? You saw this uh, from where you I sat. I wish I could say that. I'm saying now <laughs> I know. I'm, I'm looking at this more as a forensic thing. Okay. <laughs> you were, like, in the middle of this. At the- <laughs> I'm the financial Forrest Gump, essentially, yes. Because <laughs> <laughs> I also was working, you know, you may recall, I had that year at the day trading firm. Yes. And what that was all about in terms of deconstructing the stock market and recognizing what market makers were and all that stuff. So as a journalist in Facebook, again, in that one particular area of Facebook, were there any indications that journalism was starting to suffer at the hands of Facebook's power once it opened up its doors like that? Well, it's interesting because at the time, journalists were exactly who we wanted on the Facebook platform. And there was a whole team under news partnerships that recruited a bunch of journalists to then go out and bring on uh, big names onto the platform. Well, at the time, Facebook had this line that was like, hey, um, you know, we're just the distribution. We're not the content itself. We're just distribution. And so they kind of had an arm's length there. So they, you know, they just wanted to incentivize and bring um, a lot of these public voices onto the platform to get all that content onto the Facebook platform and, and make it into a, a machine. And they cling to that um, now. Section 230 is we're not responsible for what gets posted. We're yeah. just here to elevate it, what's being we're, posted. We're just, so. we're just the pipes. You know, thinking about it now, it's just so I had left Facebook by the time you know the 2016 election happened. But I remember Zuck coming out like the day after that and saying like, of course, we didn't have an influence on the election. How could we have? It's like, you have a billion <laughs> active users every day. Of course, all of this content is having an impact. And I so think how was your job different? It sounds like you left journalism to become more of a marketer. How did your journalistic talents factor into that? It's not uncommon. I do think that, you know, with PR and media relations, it, it's a discipline. It's different than journalism, but a lot of the skills transfer, right? So now I do a lot of writing and a lot of pitching story ideas, content creation. I always thought, you know, if I could find a company that I really, really respected and loved the vision and mission, then I could go to the dark side, right? Because it's always like, oh, you're leaving journalism to be a PR guy. Oh, it's the dark side. It's really not. Like, I think if you 
if you believe in the company and you're, I have equity in the company I'm with now. So it's like, I, I want this company to succeed. And, and looking back at Facebook, Facebook was not that company, right? I kind of had regrets about, you know, because I bought in hook, line and sinker, keeping the world open and connected. And it was like, no, we're actually just going to take all of your information and use it to sell advertising, right? So that's a different, that's the, that's the reality versus the mission statement, right? But I mean, I think we all were sort of taken in by that. I mean, my perspective on marketing is that marketing is good because how else would you know about things that are going to actually improve your life, right? And how else would journalists know about things that they want to tell people about? You can't just be a journalist and rely on walking down the street to have stories land in your lap. In hindsight, we should have known, right, that Mark Zuckerberg wasn't a good person. So he wasn't going to be running a good company. Like the whole thing just evolved. It was the pick book, right? It was just that. Rating co-eds. It was just hot or yeah, not at Harvard. Exactly. I mean, I don't know like what your you guys came on Facebook, but I came on Facebook in, I don't know, like 2007. It was like not that far after. Yeah you could get on without having a .edu email account. And my younger coworker forced me to get on it. He was like, you're getting a divorce. You have to stop hiding from people and you can get in touch with your friends from high school who still like you. If you (laughs) get on Facebook, (laughs) part of my issue with Facebook is that in some ways it's so nefarious, but in other ways they're just leaving so much money on the table like the fact that you can start a page, whether you're a corporation or a human being or a person with a company or whatever, you can start a page and accumulate all these followers. And if I were running Facebook, you could pay a certain amount to reach all of your followers with your message. But the way Facebook has done it is you can pay a certain amount and they guarantee that you'll reach like 8% of your followers or something like that. So it's not even a good buy. Why would you create this entire system and then hamstring yourself by not creating algorithms that make any sense? It's like they're guided by Dr. Doofenshmirtz somehow instead of by like an actual book Dr. Doofenshmirtz with an investment portfolio. <laughs> I don't know. I was attracted to Facebook because of that mission, you know, keep the world open and connected. And I did see all of this, this news going there. I mean, I would open up the Facebook feed and consume my news for the day. And I thought, wow, here I am working at, at CNN 17 years. This is the future. But what I didn't think about at the time is Facebook was all about engagement metrics, right? So the likes and the the comments and the sharing and the sharing was the most important because you actually took a piece of content and shared it out into your friend's network. But, you know, what was happening is it just became like, because of that model, it started to manipulate because if you want engagement, right, you're going to feed people stuff that they like, right? And then the problem is it just builds up this echo chamber where you're only consuming and commenting and engaging and sharing things that appeal to you. And that's not really how, you know, political discourse should work. How, you know, (laughs) if you're out and want to hear some different ideas and maybe your mind is open to different thoughts and opinions, kind of like how we were, you know, back in college, we were like absorbing all different things. It became this place to just absorb the one thing. And so I think that you know, social media in particular, and the way, you know, Google runs its algorithm, it's all kind of building this divisive society. 
Um, so what kind bad. of conversations have you had with your kids about this? They're young adults who are trying to form their own lives as digital natives and react to how all of these forces have evolved to become really aggressive capitalistic entities that want to soak you for every drop of blood you can get. <laughs> how, how are you teaching yeah. them to, uh, to cope with that and to resist that? A year and a half ago, we sat down and watched The Social Dilemma. They actually deleted their uh, social media accounts for a while. I, I can't say they were permanent because um, I definitely see my, my daughter on TikTok now and you know my son's on Instagram. They definitely changed their habits and reduced the amount of social networking they were doing. I say, hey, look, you know, you can't believe everything that you see in these in your feed. Go and have a real conversation with people. You know, as middle-aged people, we need to harness technology. We need to keep up with technology, and that can feel like more of a challenge the older you get, just because things are moving so fast. And as a writer, as a storyteller, as a journalist, do you feel the threat of AI, or do you feel like you can harness AI to make you better at your job and help your talents flourish further? I think that our jobs are safe for now because AI doesn't seem to have much personality yet. So you can do the SEO optimization and you can have it spit out, you know, a thousand words and you can tell it like, hey, what, what's the average in the United States? An eighth grade reader. That's what a lot of marketing material is is targeting an eighth yeah. grade a reading level, which is okay. kind just, of depressing. Wasn't USA One more reason Today? to just walk into the ocean. Yeah, for real. <laughs> well, wasn't USA Today always targeted at like the fourth grade reading level? I think that was what they always said it was. <laughs> yeah, I if think that's If your mommy right. and daddy have a lemonade stand. <laughs> I think that ChatGPT and, and these other tools could be useful for writing, I guess, like maybe generic reports that you have to do. Not anything that would be like a thought leadership essay or something that, you know, you want to sit down and have a real conversation with a journalist, which is a, a lot of my job. I sit down and, and talk about my company and make sure that the journalist understands, you know, what we're all about. I don't think that can be sort of replaced with AI. But I do think some of the reporting that you would have to do for like a resume, for example, I think AI can really nail a resume. I'll go one step further, just because I'm curious what your thought is. You know, um, when you look at the writer strike, which is notable for many reasons, most of which is it's so visible because you have people who write things that reach a lot of people and the actors are in there too. So you have charismatic people who are parroting the message and that's the power of this strike. But what you hear is that some of the producers, the reason they're dug in they don't even think that writing needs to be good because they're saying younger people don't even pay attention to what they're watching now. They have their phones open. It just has to exist and feed the algorithm with volume so that more people are attracted to your platform so that you have the eyes and the eyeballs become clicks and the clicks become revenue. And so when we say AI text isn't that good, there are people who are like, it doesn't have to be that good. It just has to be. What do you think mm -hmm. about that as far as a, a truly cynical thing that makes us all just want to go out and be beet farmers? You know, I was watching Only Murders in the Building last night and I thought, oh, I, I love the writing on this show. I love yeah. the writing. It's so clever. But I think for ad revenue, right, and for clicks and, you know, the, the sort of tactical ways in which you can write things that get more engagement and pick up and it's all part of that machine, AI does a fine job of just producing content, but it's not very interesting. It may trick the algorithms and it may, you know, show up in your feed because it's got the right keywords in it, but you're never going to sit down and want to read a bunch of it. There will always be room for great writing. 
I guess I'm imposing my own neuroses on this conversation, but the fact is, as someone who loves writing, I see that as existentially under threat. Just because there are the people who pay for the writing don't value it as much. If there is a viable reason not to value good writing, what hope is there left? But (laughs) I think the solution to not valuing writing is reality TV. You know, that's, that's the direction that a lot of places have gone in. But I also think that if you look at what has been really entertaining reality TV, it is not that it was scripted, right? It wasn't that the episodes were written. It was the way it was set up and the formula that was created for that specific show or series or whatever by a human brain. The good ones were the ones that were created to have enough structure, but also enough leeway and put people in interesting situations. I don't think you can replicate that with chat GPT. The choice now is either you have real people doing real writing, or you have real people doing real formulating of reality TV that you put real people in and they act in real ways. The robot can't win either way. Yeah, but you think about reality TV, because I keep thinking of how the last writer strike basically meant that NBC needed more content. And so they extended The Apprentice. Let's save ourselves the pain of reliving that whole series of events. I say that. I thought The Apprentice was good reality TV. Like, I think there right, have been... Right, but we're in the minority. It was a huge hit. Well, Jersey Shore is a huge hit. Good. They're rebooting Jersey Shore, for heaven's sake. <laughs> okay, but Reality Shore was great reality TV. The, the Apprentice was not. Well, ratings disagree with you. what Doug says. You know, is this an existential threat? It's interesting because our generation especially like values that writing. And, you know, if you're right, Doug, and we are just filling SEO and keywords and just filling content for content's sake, and it's just okay that it exists, will our kids just get used to seeing that and forget about what good writing is? I look at journalism. I look at CNN when I joined it, you know, 25 years ago, and we had some really, really great writers and journalists who, you, if you're going to interview the author of a book, you'd read the entire book, come up with thoughtful questions and interview the author, and you would get all this in, in the final report. And now it's just live cameras. Yeah. Live cameras. Just turn the camera live and just have a talking head. And somebody's yeah. just, just talking and talking and talking. And there's not that deeper analysis and the writing that comes from that analysis that then is in the final report that you go, oh, wow, that was really great journalism. Do our kids like lose the sense of what good writing means, right? Do they not get it because all they're consuming now is the opposite, right? And what do you do in that situation? You can't ford the river, you know, the river's going to flow. Yep. I mean, all you can do is just tell your kids, you know, read To Kill a Mockingbird, you know, (laughs) read these wonderful pieces of literature that just don't factor into our cultures that much. But again, they're going to read what they're going to read. They're going to watch what they're going to watch. And all you can do is just kind of say, Please don't forget that once upon a time, people put a lot of care into the art they did. Well, I wonder if people who like to read AI are just going to die off. I mean, you've heard about this. People say that about racists. (laughs) Well, there are all these AI generated books about foraging mushrooms now. Really? Yes, I saw a thing about this. Well, because all these AI generated books are flooding like Amazon Kindle books, right? Which, you know, you could always put up an Amazon Kindle book and just make money on it as whatever. But so people are writing AI books and creating fake personas to be the authors and then putting them up. 
but it's not people who are actually fact checking. And so there's a specific genre of mushroom foraging books written by AI that are not factual. And now there's concern that people are going to download them and are going to eat the wrong mushrooms and are going to die. So I wonder if their due diligence about authors are just going to like go out in the forest and like not be found again because they're going to fall over dead having eaten the wrong mushrooms because of AI. You know what Robert showed me? What? Robert showed me the other day, there's a YouTube video, 10 hours of a SpongeBob SquarePants character squirting mayonnaise into his mouth. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's just there because it is, and it's got like 30,000 views, so somebody made money off it. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, they've always had stuff like that. You could listen to 10 hours of just the drum solo from uh, In the Air Tonight. <laughs> That's entertainment, man. That's where we are. <laughs> okay. But again, to me... Like that takes the human brain to think, oh, that specific drum solo instead of some other random thing. But I mean, okay, I'm also of the era that always thought hip hop was music and hip hop has always run on samples, right? So is it possible now because of the internet and because of the state and non-state of journalism to have a moment like 9-11 was that hit everyone in the entire culture, like 9-11, Krista McAuliffe, assassination of JFK, like, the, you know, those watershed moments. Is that possible now because of the way journalism is? And then the other question is, how do we keep talking about 9-11 now in a way that honors the people who were there and isn't either super jingoistic, like, you know, never forget, hashtag never forget, and we've all got to wave the flag. Or, hey, don't talk about it. It happened 22 years ago. No one cares anymore. I see a lot of posts on social during you know, 9-11. I do see a lot of like, never forget. I think that it's important for us to, to talk to our kids about it, make sure that they understand. I don't think the schools necessarily do an adequate job of you know, providing that level of understanding that, that you and I would have having you know, experience with um, either being there in person as you guys were or um, being in a news organization like I was and, and covering it. You know, I think that it's something that we just have to keep, you know, reminding them of. And I think your other question was, could we have a, a news event that kind of breaks through the noise? I, I don't really know because I see a lot of bigger news stories unfold these days that seem to be forgotten two weeks later. I yeah. see so many things. I mean, recently the Maui fires, right? Right. I see that covers kind of it's trailing off now. It's a, yeah. it's a huge story. And yet it seems like the news cycle has moved on to the next thing. And I think that's part of the way that algorithms work, the way that you consume content now with these three second, five second TikTok videos that, you know, all of a sudden you've watched, you know, 30 videos in a row and you can't, you can't really remember what you saw and you can't tell anybody about it either. You can say, well, I saw this thing in my feed the other day, but you, you, you consume it so quickly. I think that's kind of changed the way that we, experience these news stories. And there's this numbing effect too. I, I think that there's so many school shootings, for example, now that mm -hmm. it's just on to the next one. And you think back, what was the last big mass shooting that had a multi-day or multi-week impact on the news cycle? Right. It's been a long time. Maybe Mandalay Bay in Las Vegas. I think Uvalde, Texas. Okay, Uvalde, Uvalde right? yeah, that was an elementary school that was what? earlier last year it seems like yeah it was... but i think before uvalde it was you're right it was mandalay bay 
and there are so, so many horrible ones. I mean, a professor was killed yesterday. I mean, the day we're recording this, right? A professor was killed yesterday at uh, UNC. And who knows by the time this is up, if people will even remember that one. Right. Before Rivalde, <laughs> there was Parkland. That was five years yeah, ago. Yeah. And before that, there was Sandy Hook. And for every voice that says we need to make a change, there's a more powerful one who says it never happened and gets his pantsuit off because of it. Do you follow the arc of how CNN has evolved since you left? I mean, were you there for Jeff Zucker? I had overlap with Jeff Zucker for about six months before I left. And I remember shortly thereafter, there was the Malaysian flight um, that went missing and they just wow, kept vamping that, that story so and, and it just got just an incredible amount of coverage, right? And then to see just how much coverage they gave to the Republican primary and then to, I had left since then, but in, you know, when, when Trump was running, folks who were in that daily 9 a.m. editorial call every day at CNN was just wall to wall Trump. And I actually had uh, fellow producers who were trying to get out of there. It's like we, it's Groundhog's Day. We're covering the same thing every day. And our leader is telling us, no, 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 we're going to stay on this story all the time. I mean, I must have fielded a couple dozen calls uh, that year with folks who just wanted to get out, out of CNN, out of journalism, because they were just tired of, of right. that. So I've kind of, if you look at the ratings, like CNN is, is not, it's, it's not doing well anymore. You know, it's, it, I think it's the lowest rated cable channel now. Right. So. Right. Well, I wanted to ask you about that because I think it's tried to go down the middle, right? When Chris Lick was there, the whole idea was we need to both sides this, and we're trying to recognize that both sidesism isn't always the best way to go because Fox caters to this and MSNBC caters to that, and that's where the ratings are. And I think what CNN was trying to do is just be this defiant trip down the middle, and there's losing both sides because we're just so divided right now. Plus, now that Warner Brothers Discovery is in charge of that, you know, as soon as David Zaslav took over, CNN Plus was completely uh, unplugged. And but now it's back. Built, now it it's back? like CNN Max. It's going to be part of uh, part of Max. It's huh. not going to be the full blown CNN Plus, but it's well, going to be I part of that. Like the way these twenty four hour news channels survive is to get their people addicted. You know, you turn any little thing into something that inspires outrage and you get people into the adrenaline cycle and all that. And that's really hard to do when you're centrist. You know, my dad has been watching CNN obsessively for years and he gets like riled up about it. And I watch it and it's like they take some little thing and just is whipped up into a frenzy. And I don't, I think my dad likes it because he can get wound up about something that doesn't actually have any kind of negative effect on him or really most other people <laughs> it can you know like it's, watch. A, it's a roller coaster ride with no repercussions Where, does he get riled up by the story or by the explo exploitation of the story you know by the fact that they're gonna like they're gonna promo it you know like in the next hour we're gonna talk about this and he's like whoa i gotta find out about this and then they do this three minute <laughs> piece about it and he's like whoa i didn't even know and then they're gonna tell you we have a follow-up on such and such and all this kind of stuff. I don't know. To me, it's kind of like the way I used to get really into hurricane season on the Weather Channel. 
when I lived in New York City, right? Like, I mean, the hurricanes almost never hit the city, but wow, I could watch hours and hours and hours of Weather Channel because it was a narrative. Like, where is this hurricane coming from? And the hurricane was personified because it had a name. Like, how's it going to do? Is it level 48, level 12, level a negative six, whatever, you know? And I think it's the same kind of thing. It's creating a narrative and creating villains and creating heroes and stuff like that out of these stories that are essentially centrist, which is kind of funny. So where do we get our news now? Like, where do you go? Social media is being manipulated. Yeah. You know, the, the cable news, you know, you can't find a, a centrist place there. Like, where do you get your just straight up news? Well, what's the ratio too, right? I mean, I, what's the ratio on how soon you tune in? Joe Rogan gets, you know, 10, 20 times the audience right. of CBS Evening News. And I think like it used to be that I liked getting a lot of news from Patch, these like little, you know, the little micro sites. Like if I had my choice, I would get all my news from AP and Reuters feeds and then piece it together with Patch. But then people, they didn't figure out how to actually monetize Patch and keep that alive either. Well, what do you think, Alex? You're the new Chris Licht. How do you save CNN? Oh, boy, I don't, I don't think I'm going to take the bait there uh, on that one. <laughs> CNN needs to start by appointing really strong leadership from within, and they need to think about the model they had 25 years ago that was, if there's breaking news in the world, you turn on CNN and you watch. They did the best job of having resources in far-flung places where you'd always have that shot, that live shot, and they've gotten away from their bread and butter. I mean, CNN used to be the place you would go to watch breaking news. Yes. And I think if they can get back to that, I think they could, you know, have a good shot of succeeding, but they got to stick to just the news. Which yeah. is interesting because yeah. I don't think I even have CNN anymore. I cut the cord and I, I can too. watch every Dick Van Dyke episode ever made. But um, <laughs> So I got diagnosed with ADHD and part of ADHD is time blindness. Like you can't keep track of what time it is. And so I like to have something on TV in the background that is in... 30 minute segments so I can hear the opening and closing music and know the time. <laughs> right? Yeah. That's how you caught up so fast because you had, that was <laughs> yeah. your that was your audible clock. Yeah, exactly. That's what it is. So, um in times past I have watched HGTV, right? Because you don't have to pay any attention to it at all. You can hear the opening and closing music and the cadences and stuff like that. So sometimes I will put on Bob Barker channel on the free Things, you know, that just runs episodes of The Price is Right from 1983 through 1986, I think. And yeah. I remember where I was going with this story, except that you just... Because you have ADHD. That... <laughs> right, exactly. It's but another I mean, symptom I... of ADHD. Stories go everywhere. <laughs> Stories go everywhere. <laughs> yeah, but I think, like, the idea of going back to the roots and like, oh, of not having the TV anymore, because I used to watch CNN. And that would tell me, you know, because they were always telling you what time it was. Right. So that would be my marker. And, you know, when I lived in New York City, I would watch New York one because it was the same thing. And they would have, you know, like this story, like the transit report at such and such a time and stuff like that. But if you don't have CNN, or if it's not serving that purpose anymore, if they're trying to rile you up instead of tell you what time it is. Well, yeah, they have ta- they have perfect. countdown clocks now that say, stay tuned, right. and this is the amount of time that's going to elapse until we yeah. make up something about breaking news that broke right. 36 hours ago. 
Yeah, I don't know. I'd rather watch The Price is Right. I've learned a lot about culture in the 80s. Right. Same with me in Columbo reruns. Yeah, like, you know, a lady <laughs> comes up and um, she's bidding on a car and Bob asks her, so who's going to drive this car? Are you going to drive this car or is your husband going to drive this car? And half of them say, oh, my husband's going to drive this car. <laughs> Okay. Well, speaking of time blindness, uh, we've been on for a very long time. Alex, thank you so much for joining us today. You have lots of great insights into the history of media, how it's evolving, how you've gotten out when you needed to, how you got in when you thought you saw stuff that was going to be better than it ended up being. I mean, you've been in a lot of interesting places in media. I appreciate your insights into AI and into your co-parenting, and it was great to meet you finally. So thank you so much for coming along. Nice meeting you guys. Thanks for having me on. Good to see my good friend Magda after all these years. Thanks again. Really enjoyed it. So you you know Mike, right? Did you know Mike at college? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Z. Um, Z. Z. <laughs> um, does that make you Mrs. Z eventually? I guess. <laughs> I, I really should stop touching that third rail. I keep yeah. doing it, and I don't know why. It just I keep asking about that, and it's really none of my damn business. But it's just interesting to uh, I have to that's, I have to confront that in my own psyche. Why I keep probing right. that, even though I know it's problematic. Listeners, thank you so much for listening to episode fifteen of the When the Flames Go Up podcast with Magda Pechinia and me, Doug French. Our guest has been Alex Walker, who wrote a really wonderful piece about nine eleven back in November of two thousand one and we'll be linking to that in the show notes. We'll see you next week for episode 16, and we'll have more information then about the dystopian morass of current media. (laughs) Until then, bye-bye. No candid banter? Damn it. No candid banter.